Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I'm your host, Sophie Day, joined, as always, by the luminescent Hannah. Ooh, luminescent. And if you notice, I did not forget to unmute my microphone this time, so... I was I wasn't gonna say anything, but I am very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting better at this, guys, day by day. Do you think that uh, you mentioned up top that there's a, a interesting circumstance going on in your current setting? Do you think that has anything to do with you remembering to unmute yourself? Um. Well, if anything, it should be the opposite. Um, I was telling <laughs> Sophie before we started recording that there is like a noticeable. Uh, scent of gas looming in my apartment. Um, so I might pass out or hallucinate throughout this process. But if anything, I feel like that kind of goes with my vibe. So, mm-hmm. like, you guys it's might It's really on notice. brand for you. Yeah. Um, and even, like, right before we started recording, my roommate ran in here because he set off the smoke detector in the living room. And he brought it into my room because he was like, I need to get this out of the smoke so it will stop beeping. So I also feel like like at any moment that could start going off again. Um, so it's real, real ragtag uh, production over here. <laughs> Hannah, if you could really quick, just so you don't panic all of our listeners the way that you panicked me earlier, this gas smell is just a thing that happens sometimes when you use your oven, right? Yeah, which is totally normal. Um, if you use your oven, which is in the kitchen, that your bedroom, which is 10 feet away, fills with the scent of gas. I think that's normal. For oh, yeah, totally safe. I kitchens. mean, at least it <laughs> at least it happens sometimes. So you are this is not a new occurrence. And in the past, you have been OK. Yeah. And I also live uh, really close to a restaurant kitchen and I went outside. And it smelled really gassy out there, too. So I think I'm actually just like getting it extra tonight because I'm getting it from like both sides so i don't think anyone's like in danger but i definitely think it's like more gas than would normally be acceptable (laughs) yeah so what you're saying is chicago's just farting (laughs) up a storm right now oh no different kind of gas not what i would (laughs) like to call uh sewer farts when you're walking downtown and it smells like (laughs) someone just passed gas that really no distinct, around. that really distinct summertime Chicago smell that just smells like walking down Bourbon Street in the middle of the day when it's hot outside. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and you're like, wait, there is no person who just ate bad sushi. Where is that smell coming from? <laughs> it's the street. It's the streets. If you've ever been to Chicago in the summer or to New Orleans, uh, specifically Bourbon Street during the day, you are familiar with this smell. And if you haven't, you will be someday. So just prepare for that, I guess. Oh, I will say I'm getting like a faint sense of pork chop now. In your gas? I think we're either we're through, we're moving through the gas portion of the evening or the hallucinations have begun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, Hannah, I am, it's so interesting because I have been very much dreading and looking forward to talking about this week's movie, so why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, I wish I could, wait, I was going to try to gulp really loud into the microphone. 
<laughs> wow, that that worked. <laughs> Just that to go, you did you know, a thing. Because we're talking about swallow, so that's yes. why I did that. Han- Hannah, thank you so much for that uh, auditory aid. Yes, as my beautiful co-host so delicately alluded to, we are going to be discussing (laughs) (laughs) Carlo Carlo Mirabella Davis's film Swallow. This movie came out this year. To give you guys some background, uh, or I'm sorry, it came out in 2019, but you get it. So I saw this movie was screening at Panic Fest when that happened in Kansas City. And so every year when we go to Panic Fest, my boyfriend and I have not yet bought the weekend pass. And so usually I will go through the list of all the movies. I will highlight the ones that look interesting to me. And then Jeremy and I will discuss and pick a couple to go to. This year, because my friend Andy was coming and he's super organized, he made a spreadsheet of every movie and its plot synopsis. During He like broke it up into the blocks of the festival And he had each movie that was screening during each block and who directed it and the plot synopsis. And then there was a column for both Andy and I to indicate our hype level to see the movie. And then he had another column that said other times the movie was showing. And I just remember reading the description of Swallow and then watching the clip from the film that was online and being like, this looks kind of beautiful just from a visual perspective. But I don't know. It was at the same time as something else I wanted to see. So I read the description to Jeremy, who promptly was like, fuck no, we're not watching that movie. So <laughs> the, the plot synopsis, as listed on IMDb, is Hunter, a newly pregnant housewife, finds herself increasingly compelled to consume dangerous objects. As her husband and his family tighten their control over her life, she must confront the dark secret behind her new obsession. Mm. So as that... As that indicates, the film follows a protagonist named Hunter, who is a young woman married to a not at all subtly named man named Richie, who is this like white uh, businessman of some kind who obviously came from a very wealthy family. And it's sort of alluded to that she did not come from a wealthy background and now that they're married, she her job essentially is to just be a housewife and stay at home and keep the house clean and cook really fancy meals for him. And then right. she just seems like bored and miserable all the time. Um, and then she learns that she's pregnant. And upon learning that she is pregnant, Hunter starts swallowing non-food items that become the stuff that she chooses to swallow becomes increasingly more dangerous And it becomes very apparent that her life and the baby's life are clearly at risk. And yet this compulsion to keep swallowing things is something that she doesn't seem to have a lot of control over. And so that's sort of the overall plot of the movie. So my friend Andy went to see it at Panic Fest. Jeremy and I did not go. My friend Andy hated it. Mm. And so I remember maybe a month or two later when he, when you said, hey, have you heard anything about this movie Swallow? I think it'd be kind of interesting to cover on our podcast. And I was reticent, but thought it would be interesting to watch it. And then I got a screener for it to review it for Bloody Good Horror. So I watched it uh, last week and wrote a review for bloodygoodhorror.com if you want to read that. Um but yeah, this movie was a time, Hannah. What did you, what was your, you and I have talked off air about my experience watching it. I want to know 
what you fe- how you felt watching this movie. Um, yeah, so to be honest and sort of to my own surprise, I actually like I don't want to say I enjoyed it <laughs> because it was hard to watch a lot of it. Yeah. Um I I feel almost like uh at times I feel almost like the fact that she was pregnant was I don't want to say inconsequential because I think that that was a huge part of sort of what uh, led into like the reveal of what was going on. But I, in my mind, watching it, I felt way more like the writer director was like, wouldn't it be crazy if there was like a woman swallowing thumbtacks and like just moved from there? Um, <laughs> like, I think that that was like, that would be really unnerving to watch. Like, I wonder what mm-hmm. I could do with that. So I, to me, it felt like the like more so like not the point, but maybe the intention behind it originally was like, I'm just gonna make people squirm, watching this woman eat these things, and then the sort of like the rest of the storyline was just like, added in <laughs> to make it into a movie, um, but so I don't want to say I enjoyed it per se because it mm-hmm. was like uncomfortable to watch, but I actually. Like, I basically, like, I didn't hate it as much as I was expecting to. And I did kind of like it, actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, then this will be a really interesting conversation. Um, no, and I want to say... I refuse to talk any more about it. That's all I have to say, and we're done. I want to say... next time. Clink. I want to see... <laughs> <laughs> that deadpan clink. Um, <laughs> I want to say two things in response to your... your uh, your summary, which is that one, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with this at all, but uh, the film is portraying an eating disorder called Pika. Mm-mm. Okay, so Pika I mean, I is. Know she mentions it, but I, they didn't really get into that. Yeah, so Pika is, and I don't even know. I think, I mean, I think it technically would count as an eating disorder. It is a compulsive thing that people develop. It is more common in pregnant women than in the general mm-hmm. population where people develop a craving for chewing on and eating non-edible items. So things like dirt, paper, wood chips, Oh, Gabby's mom wanted to eat chalk. She like ate chalk. When she was pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that, that is a real thing that is being, that is being portrayed here. Although I'm not, I think it would be a very, obviously a very extreme case of Pika if somebody was eating, like she's clearly eating things that she knows are dangerous because she wants to see if she can. So that's a, that's a little bit different. But the other thing that I read, um, let's see, I read an article on Thrillist, which we'll link to in our show notes, where the writer director who, again, his name is Carlo Mirabella Davis. He talked about the fact that he this movie for him was partially inspired by his grandmother so she was a woman who had a very compulsive behavior let's see if i can find this so it said this this is from that article it says his grandmother was by his description a homemaker in an unhappy marriage who developed quote rituals of control including obsessive hand washing she would go Mm. through four bars of soap a day and 12 bottles of rubbing alcohol a week his Yikes. grandfather had his grandfather had her committed to a mental institution where she was given electroshock therapy, insulin shock therapy, and a lobotomy. Ah. Um, and so I think, like, to your point about um, 
the idea of watching someone swallow a thumbtack, I think for, and he sort of says as much in this convert, in this article that he wanted to do something, you know, he felt like the way his grandmother treated was treated, he says was, was very punitive and he didn't like that. He felt like she was punished for not living up to what the expectations were for her gender at the time. But he also felt like showing someone washing their hands over and over was not very cinematic. And this would, translate better on screen um wow that's like i'm really glad that you uh do the research really glad you do the work sophie because <laughs> i'm over here like like this jerk off just wanted to watch us make us watch girls swallow things um <laughs> and like <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and i'm actually like really happy to learn that it had more uh, intention behind it especially like to show an experience that was close to him like mm -hmm. I am uh, historically a, a huge fan of the I don't know if it's still on it might be late great uh, TLC early TLC reality television show My Strange Addiction mm -hmm. um, and this to me was like like when I was in college a lot of my friends from high school when we would come home we would like go to one of our each other's houses and we would all watch my strange addiction together but we would really only watch the first half hour which is when they explain like what the addiction is and then the second half hour they do like an intervention and try to see if the person can like get better um but we would always just watch the <laughs> half an hour about what their addiction was and then move on so for me mm -hmm. at times watching this movie i was like oh this is bringing back like my strange addiction feels for me and that was making me feel like maybe that's you know what he was going for so it, I'm happy to actually hear that it, he had like way more of a meaningful intention behind it than just being like people eat crazy stuff did you know <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah so in this in this same article he talks about the fact that when he was trying to find a think of a way to adapt the story, he came across, um, I think in an article, he saw photos of objects that had been taken from someone's stomach who suffered with Pika and they had been cleaned and laid out. Mm. And that was sort of, that really struck him. And so if when, as you watch the movie, um, every time that Haley, uh, I'm sorry, Hunter is, Haley's the actress's name. Every time Hunter passes something that she ate, she cleans it off and then she has this kind of mirrored tray on her dresser mm -hmm. where she keeps everything like displayed, um, which is really interesting because a, it is like a visual reminder to her that she achieved these things. Right. But it's also such a good visual symbol for the fact that her husband is just totally checked out from her in every way. Like there is this growing collection of weird knickknacks and stuff on her dresser and he's never getting like, progressively hey, larger too. and pointier <laughs> yeah um, and he's never like oh what's this about the other thing that um that i wanted to point out is that uh the director also reached out to rachel bryant waugh who's a clinical psychologist with a specialty in treating eating disorders and he had her read the script and then consult on the movie um so i do think as we sort of get into talking about this movie, it is clear that there was a lot of intentionality to this and there was a lot of care taken 
to try to handle the the psychological aspect of what Haley's go um, Hunter is going through in a way that is uh, empathetic and and fair. And so I do really appreciate that. And I think what's going to come out again and again as we talk about this movie, because I did not like it as much as Hannah did. Um, but what I think will come out again and again as we talk about it is I think it is clear watching this film that um, Marabella Davis is a really talented director. Everything is beautifully shot. The set designs are gorgeous. The costuming is gorgeous. Haley Bennett, who plays Hunter, her performance is amazing. I think for me, this is a movie that has all, almost all of the moving parts are perfect. And then there's just, for me, really one big thing that junks up the works. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one other piece of background info I wanted to give you that I didn't know if you were aware of is that apparently Haley Bennett, who plays Hunter, she found out right before they started recording that she was pregnant. Oh. So I think that... I mean, her performance is beautiful anyway, and there's something really powerful and and heartbreaking about watching her continue to eat these things despite the fact that it's clearly hurting her and could hurt the baby. And that yeah. just seems like it has so much more weight when you are a pregnant actress who is probably already worried about what to do with a baby growing inside of your body. Yeah, and also, to me, there was so many times that I was like, she actually looks pregnant. Like, I was like, how did they do this? Because she's early stages pregnant. But there's, like, like, like as a woman, or I don't know, maybe men, too. I don't know if they have this. But, I mean, well, okay. So, you know, as we've discussed sometimes before, is that I'm really good at, like, recognizing people from things and, like, telling you what they've been in. I'm also really good at telling when someone's wearing a wig and when someone's pregnant in, like, everything. And sometimes it makes it hard for me to watch things because I'm like, this is annoying. I can tell this person's wearing a wig. Or, like, I can tell this person is pregnant and they're trying to make me think they're not pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, like, the reverse for this where I was like, she looks so early stages pregnant where it's, like, just her face is rounder, just, like, her breasts are fuller. But she's not really showing very very much like in her midsection and I was like wow whoever did the makeup in this like really thought this through so it's funny that she was actually pregnant because I was like watching it being like wow I'm so impressed with these like carefully thought out effects like they thought about the things that you wouldn't necessarily uh notice about someone being early stages pregnant um no definitely so as we talk about the the sort of like care in the details, let's talk about some of the details in this movie because I think from a, again, this movie is very thoughtfully done in a lot of ways. So um, one thing that I caught on to right away that I'm sure you notice as well is, I mean, I think throughout the movie, we are supposed to feel like Hunter doesn't think, doesn't feel like she has any control over her life. She right. spends all day waiting at home and getting the house ready for Richie and keeping the house clean in case he wants to have friends over. Um, and so there, we get all these scenes of her just like hanging around the house, playing video games on her phone or like smoothing the, bl- the covers on the bed. And um, so I think from a very early stage in the film, we are meant to understand that presentation is really important. So we have scenes with things like 
Hunter is watching TV and there's this there's this ad for teeth whitening stuff. And then we see her cook a dinner and she plates everything really exquisitely and like te- checks everything's temperature to make sure everything is perfect. Um, and we see her waiting for him on the couch when he gets home from work. She's like wearing a, a really beautiful dress and all her hair and makeup is done and she's playing a game on her phone. But as soon as he gets there, she puts the phone away and is very attentive to him. Um, we have a scene later where they go to get into bed and and the camera is outside of the house looking in through the bedroom window and he is not in the room. He's like getting ready in the bathroom and Hunter is laying, gets in bed. She's in this like very beautiful ornate nightgown and she gets in bed and like smooths the blankets out over top of her before he comes to get in bed. <laughs> so it seems like we are meant to understand that um, Hunter is someone, at least in her current context, who doesn't ever want anything to be out of place. Everything is, like, beautiful and presentation-ready all the time. Yeah, well, and I think also just, like, in the way that we see her interact with her husband's family, I think, like, for me, it seems like some of that is her own her own thing, but some of that, too, is, like, that she already feels the need to impress or be a certain way for mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, especially with the uh, the scene of, like, her fixing the blankets before her husband comes in. It reminds me of, like, the uh, one of my favorite scenes in Bridesmaids is, like, one of the very first scenes when Kristen Wiig gets out of bed from having just, like, slept over after having, like, sex all night. And she goes in the bathroom and does her makeup, but she does makeup to just, like, make her look like she's not wearing any makeup. Mm-hmm. And then she gets back in bed and, like, coughs, so he wakes up so she can pretend like she hasn't been awake. Yeah. And I love that, that scene in Bridesmaids because it's just, like, such a universal feeling, especially for when you're, like, really into someone and you don't want them to, like, actually know what you actually look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it reminds <laughs> me so much of that where it's, like, where it's like that, but it's even crazier because it's like you would think that by the time you're married to someone, you would be in a place where like you're comfortable for it to be knowledge, like common knowledge to your partner that like you're not always perfect. So right. that scene, especially because it happens so early on, I felt like sets up really well really early on that like she is concerned about appearances and specifically like for her husband and her husband's family Mm -hmm. because it's also like she like thanks them a lot for the fact that they bought them a house so it's also like seems like there's some type of aspect of it that's like she owes them no i i totally agree i feel like there is so much in this movie that indicates like we've we touched on this a little bit in the beginning there are so many signs that he just doesn't understand her and he doesn't, she's not, we don't get any sense that he appreciates anything about her as a person. So like not, not only do we have the stuff about he's not noticing that she is starting to collect this weird uh, combination of objects, but we have other scenes like the first time we meet him, he comes home from work and she has cooked him this meal and is all dressed up for him waiting when he gets home. And he sits with her 
at the table for maybe five minutes and then is like, oh, I have to take this and starts texting someone and texts for the rest of the meal. And she says something and he puts his phone out and goes, what? She ha- says this whole soliloquy and he is not listening. Right. So we have stuff like that. We have, there's a, a really, a scene that makes me really sad when they go out to eat and he makes her tell this story that she clearly told him because it made her sad and he's presenting it like it's funny Mm-hmm. Where he's like, oh, yeah, tell, babe, tell my parents about that weird, crazy guy you used to see on the way home from school. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it, it's clear that he doesn't appreciate her and probably doesn't listen to her. He's not taking her emotional cues. The scene where she finds out she's pregnant and then it cuts to him on the phone with his mom saying, we're pregnant. And he's so excited. And the camera is on Hunter and she is, she looks terrified and devastated it is so sad um and he has no awareness that like she's not up on the phone with him she is sitting alone on the couch staring into space clearly she's not doing fine well it's Um, it's interesting to me too because it's like so at a certain point in this movie i was like is part of the horror, like, because there's parts of this movie where I'm like, is this really a horror movie, or is it just more, like, psychological? But um, there's parts of it where, when there are moments like that, where it's like, she's in a room with all these people, and no, like, it reminds me of, like, I'm sorry, I keep relating this to other things, but, you know, in Buffy, when um, the Dawn's guidance counselor's, like, a vengeance demon, and they all Mm -hmm. get stuck in the house for Buffy's birthday party? Mm Mm-hmm. So, it's like, when they confront the vengeance demon about it, she's like, I'm sorry, but this person was, like, she was crying out so loudly, I could hear it all over town, and so I had to do something. It's like, this, her body language, like, everything that she's putting out, even when she's smiling, is, like, screaming that this person is, like, having a hard time. And the way that she's around people who are around her a lot, but just completely ignore it or don't see it. I was like, wow, it's this, there is a part of this movie that's really scary because it's scary that people still behave that way. Like Mm -hmm. people still get married, even when they don't love the person or don't really care to get to know them. Or just don't know them. And just don't know them. Yeah. And like, uh, and then like there are still families where the appearances and stuff matter more than your well being And, that stuff was really scary to me in this other way. And especially there's a scene earlier on when she um, goes to meet up with his his mother. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because it seems to me that the mother is in a similar position. It's not really, you know, made clear whether or not she came from money or it doesn't seem like she has a job either because... Right. She's available in, like, the middle of the day. But she definitely seems to, like, still sort of look down on Hunter or she doesn't give her a lot to work with. And and yet, when they're alone and they spend this time alone together and they're talking, and you can tell even then that, like, Hunter is going through something, she says to her, like, are you... So she said the best advice I ever got was fake it till you make it. And then Hunter's like, huh? And she's like, yeah, so which is it? And she's like, what? And she's like, are you really happy or are you just pretending? 
And in that moment, to me, it was like, she knows she's not happy. She knows she's pretending. She can see it, and she's making the decision to ignore it. Yep. And tell her to hide it better, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's basically being like, I can see it. Like, if you're pretending, which I know you are, you're not doing a good enough job. So, like, tighten up for everybody else. Yeah. And it seems like every interaction, I mean, even we talked about the mom, and obviously we talked about her husband, but we see these other moments where she interacts with other people that are equally sort of, like, transactional and surface. So there's a scene where Richie comes home, we assume from some kind of business meeting, and it's him and a bunch of guys, and they're all drunk. And Hunter is already in what appears to be, like, a nightdress to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And all these guys go out to the pool, and they're kind of hanging out around the pool. One of them goes in the pool. Um, Hunter doesn't immediately join them because this is right after she's eaten the thumbtack. So she goes to the bathroom and passes the thumbtack and gets blood in the toilet. So she is furiously, like, bleaching and scrubbing the toilet. And Richie comes to get her. It's this really interesting scene where she's so horrified to have made a mess, right? And, like, he knocks on the door, and when she doesn't immediately answer, he's like, what's wrong? Like, what's going on? Or he doesn't ask what's wrong. He says, what's going on in there? Which, from the jump, is interesting because she's pregnant. She could be having morning sickness. She just, like, she probably doesn't feel great. If she just needs a minute in the bathroom, that doesn't seem that unusual to me. Right. Um, but then he's basically like, okay, well, like, all my friends are here. You need to come hang out with us. Um, and it doesn't seem like he wants her to be there for any other reason than just for her to be there so he can be like, that's my wife. Look at my, look at my wife. Yeah. And so. My wife. Yeah. So she goes downstairs <laughs> and all the guys are back outside and one of the coworkers walks inside and he asks her for a kiss. And she says, well, I'm Richie's wife. Which is a weird way to, I mean, I think we've all been in that scenario where a guy hits on you and you're like, I have a boyfriend. Because it's just like, I know that's the only thing that you're going to listen to, even though that's bullshit. Like, but even that doesn't deter the guy. And when she asks why he asks her that, he said, or no, he asks for a hug and she says why. And he says, because I'm too drunk. I'm to not drunk enough to ask you for a kiss. Yeah. And she says that he's rich. she's Richie's wife and he doesn't really respond to that. And so she does hug him. And it's this really sad scene where I don't get the impression that she particularly wants to hug him. She's hugging him because she feels like she should. But then when she hugs him, it's like she's she doesn't hasn't maybe gotten that kind of attention from anyone in a long time. So it's this really interesting scene where you can tell she's unhappy, but also is noticing this is a thing that she misses. And then later. Oh, so sad. It's really sad. Like, and then I was perhaps, happy for her because it seems like their hug is genuine. And I was like, she just needed a hug. And then... But it's not genuine on his end. Like, he's I know, just like, then when, when later on he's being, like, when it's very clear he was just perving out. I was like, yeah. oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> this whole movie, I was just like, every person she came into contact with that gave her, like, a little bit of anything. I was, like, so hopeful that that person was going to be better, and then nobody was, except for the bodyguard guy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that leads us into the scene that I found to be the most sad, and from from what you said, the most scary when you think about, like, the existential fear of the fact that this kind of relationship is still very prevalent. And so Mm -hmm. they have a party... And they have all these people over. 
And Hunter has cleaned the whole house. It's immaculate. She's made all kinds of hors d'oeuvres and finger foods, and she's playing perfect hostess. She offers some food to a woman who says, if I eat any more, I'll have to get my stomach pumped. Now, this is right after Richie and his family became aware of Hunter's compulsion, and she had to have uh, her stomach pumped to get dangerous stuff out of her body. Yeah. So as soon as the woman says it, we see on her face that she realizes she shouldn't have said it. And in that moment, Hunter understands that Richie has told other people about what she's doing. And she's really upset. And she gets angry at Richie, and rightfully so, and says, basically, like, this is my business. Why would you share it? It's not for anyone else to know unless I want to tell them. Um, And then Richie's response is to just jump in and say, she's fine now, everything's fine now, and not let her speak for herself. Yeah, he says, don't ruin my birthday, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then he takes her outside and is like, don't ruin my party. Yeah. You can't, I mean, you can't see me, but I'm just like, you know, that like, ugh, just go jerk off. Like, what a dick. Sad hand job (laughs) gesture. Well, yeah, and then there's a scene later on after after she gets caught swallowing things a second time. And he sort of berates her for just being lazy and not doing anything all day except, like, eating this dangerous stuff. And it's – we don't ever get this said to us explicitly, but, I mean, she worked before she met him. So it seems like her not working now has more to do with him wanting her to be home to, like, keep the house clean and cook for him and stuff. And so him him yelling at her for being lazy and not working is such bullshit. Well, and it's, like, it's funny that we watched this right after we watched Invisible Man because Mm -hmm. there was Mm -hmm. aspects of their relationship that were mirror images of Invisible Man where it's, like, you go into Invisible Man and they're, like, flat out, like, straight off the bat, this is an abusive relationship where the husband is in control. In Swallow, it's, like, a little more ambiguous, but it's still, like, they live in a secluded palatial mansion with a lot of windows, and one of the first things I clocked is, like, how he has a car, and we see his car all the time, but she doesn't even have a car. Mm, I and did not like, notice that, Hannah. Well done. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> but, like, to me, I was like, that is wild to think, like, they live in a house that his parents bought. He bought his car, or his parents bought his car, with... His parents bought his car. Right, like, with their company money or whatever, and she doesn't have one. It's like, she doesn't even have a way to go anywhere or do anything if she wants to. And to me, that was, was so interesting because it was like, in Invisible Man, when we're going into it with that idea, it's like, all these things we see where, like, this explicitly shows that this is an abusive relationship, or this is, like... This person is trapped. But when you go into Swallow in a different context, it's like you wouldn't even necessarily notice. Like, they only have one car, which is crazy. Right. Um, But, yeah, like, I think um, those two movies going back to back for us the whole time, I was like, wow, this is a really interesting mashup. Um, Is it okay if I uh, turn our attention to the bodyguard? I would love to do that. Can I say one more thing before we do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I want to, like, we're going to really, I think, dig into that conversation because I also think he's a real gem of a character, although I have some questions. But I did want to say one other thing as we're just talking about the level of control with that she has within the household being minimal. 
we do see that what she's doing during the day is she is doing work, redoing the house, redesigning the house, right? So there's a scene where she spends all this time doing the baby's nursery. And I was obsessed with the design aesthetic of their house. It's this like very interesting mashup of like 50s through 80s retro kind of all mashed together with with some very modern stuff i loved it and did you like the red windows in the baby's nursery they weren't all red it was one red and one yellow and one blue you like that i found it so i here's the thing i was like only in a horror movie do you put it a red window in a baby's nursery but the thing is (laughs) all of those Windows, especially the red, would cut out like that. So it's important to note that the baby's room, one whole wall is windows. It's like these three giant floor to ceiling windows. You would need something to cover those windows because otherwise the baby can't sleep. And having those, that red like cuts down so much of the sunlight. So it makes the room uh, much it's darker. Like, if only you could get a piece of fabric to put in front of your window. I know, so I know. But my, <laughs> my point is, my point is she does all this work. The, every scene we see her working on this baby's room, she's doing all this work alone mm-hmm. and she shows it to Richie. She's so proud and he doesn't like it. And then she tells him about how she picked the color for the drapes in the theater. And he's like skeptical about that too. He's like, nah, it sounds really hipster. And he says, we can do whatever you want. But he, he needs to constantly put her down about everything. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in the beginning, she says that she wants to plant a garden outside because she feels like there's there's like so much room. She'd love to have flowers. Yeah. And what we see later is that she doesn't get to plant a garden, but she does get three like square planters of flowers. So it's like even when like she can't ever do anything on her own without it being caged in, which I thought was a really beautiful motif that kind of gets carried throughout the movie. Yeah. Like in that moment when she says, I finally picked the curtains. Um, she's really excited. And then he basically is like, hmm, you sure about that? And she's like, well, you said it was up to me to pick. And he's like, mm, yeah, but. So it's like even the things that she, you know, like, quote unquote, has control over. It's still not really like she has that much control and right. I think that that's something that also makes it so frustrating when they do find out about what she's struggling with and they don't they don't approach her with any understanding or support. They just, like, her husband especially just, like, yells at her and tries to guilt her, basically, into stopping. And it's just, like, it's so similar where it's, like, even when the problem is clear with is like a problem she's having with her own body they're still like "Mm, like sure you want to do it that way here's how you're gonna do it like they're still imposing that um and a lot of those things too it's like they make her they give her some sense like it's her idea or she's giving consent in a way very much coerced to like go to therapy eventually to go to um, to be, like, committed to a hospital. Um, so even then, it's, like, once it's her own... An issue, like, where she's exercising some amount of, albeit, like, very um, dangerous control over her body, they're still, like, mm-hmm. nope, you can't have control over that either. This is how you should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings no, us to the 
bodyguard housekeeper who I really let's, liked. <laughs> let's talk about it. I want to say one thing up front, which is that my only gripe with the bodyguard, which is not with his character at all, it's just with the choice, a writing choice, was I felt like in some ways... <laughs> When we get into my other, my main complaint about this movie, uh, it has to do with trying to do too much or Mm. trying to uh, handle a topic and not handling it in a way that I felt was appropriate or sensitive. And so in that same vein, I felt that the choice to make the bodyguard he's Syrian, right? He's, he's a man who left Syria, who was in like a, the army in Syria and now lives in the States. And it's like a Mm -hmm. throwaway line in the beginning. Um, (laughs) that feels like a character choice that I wish they didn't make just because I feel like there is so much that can and should be said about the, horrible atrocities that have happened in Syria. And I feel like by just being having a throwaway thing, that's like, he's seen terrible things, um, felt pretty superficial to me and felt like they were trying to do a thing with it, but didn't succeed. And I kind of wish they had just left that part out. But that being said, I love his relationship with Hunter. And I think the performance is great. I I think it's interesting that, uh, that that's your experience. Because for me, it was actually different in that, um, like, so much of how everybody else treats her is, like, you live in this beautiful house, like, you should be fine. And even though he has, like, a throwaway line where he says, like, if you lived where I lived, like, you wouldn't have time to be worried about these things, um... Like, he's still the only person that really, like, sees and acknowledges what she's going through out of anyone around. Right. And also, like, um, from my own experience personally, it's like, one of my best friends, her boyfriend, is from Morocco. And when he first came to America, like, one of the bigger things he struggled with um, as he started, like, sort of settling into his life in America was, like, for him, he was like, I don't understand how people can, you know, like, deal with depression or, like, have time to have basically, like, mental or emotional issues. Because he's like, where I'm from, like, you don't have time to do that. Like, you just keep going. And um, I think what's kind of interesting about that is that over time it was like, he was really struggling with some of those things, but that was just never really part of his, like, vocabulary Mm -hmm. up until that point. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, to me, even if that's just a throwaway line, because I know that that was something that he also experienced, like, being from another country and being in America, to me it didn't seem like it was out of place or, like, a a throwaway. Like, to me it was like, I could see that, how a a person who was coming from a country where they have experienced war, you know, getting a job to just, like, follow around a rich woman and make sure she doesn't eat dangerous things would 
say something like that, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess that's my point is I understand why he would say that thing to her. I just, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I just, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like they give, I think that I really like the interactions between his character and her character, but I f don't feel like they give enough characterization to him to then be like, you know, he lived in this war-torn country for a long time. It just, it's just, a spe I don't know. We, uh, we don't have to agree on it, and I'm not trying to convince you of how I feel. It just, like, it didn't work for me, and having him respond to her that way, while it totally makes sense, then, for me, like, part of the shift that he makes towards supporting her, like, doesn't make as much sense, because we don't get enough time to see that happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. So it just, for, for me, I feel like the, their relationship could have been exactly the same had that not been a choice that they made. And so I don't personally understand why that choice was made. Mm. Um, yeah, that's fair. I think to me it was more so like, the way it re was read to, like the way I experienced it was more so like, a lot of people that she in interacts with do represent, like, this stereotype of Americans that are, you know, like, this, like, inherited wealth or, like, very, like, just, like, a selfishness. I mean, that's just, like, a general stereotype mm -hmm. of all Americans. For sure. So I can understand, like, why they would try to have, like, to me, it was, like, it makes sense that, like, the one person who's, like, not American in this situation is, like, the only person who's, like, even if, like, their her language is not like his first language it's like he's still the only person who's like acknowledging her pain right right i mean so he, to me it was like it had to be very different from her no matter what so that that dynamic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly sure. exactly yeah, yeah yeah um but yeah like and he uh just like moving away from that but just like the scene where she's hiding or like kind of having a panic attack under the bed and he climbs mm -hmm. down there, and he's like, oh, it's very dirty down here. I should clean this. And then, like, he yeah. just puts his hand on her shoulder. I, like, to me, that was, like, one of my favorite mm -hmm. uh, scenes in the movie. Um, just because, like, I am a person who struggles with some pretty severe bouts of depression. And, like, there are times where you are doing that or you're like, hiding somewhere or cocooned somewhere and, like, somebody... Mm -hmm. People don't always know what to do for you in those times. And so I feel like that was so... That was so, like, well-written to me that he would just, like, put his hand, like, on her shoulder, like, very non-invasive. Definitely. Very... Yeah, like, he's just sort of being, like, I'm supporting you, I'm here. And even the fact that they both fell asleep down there, like, I thought was mm -hmm. also, like, very sweet. Um, yeah. No, I love that scene, too, for, for very similar reasons. So, um, like, we've, I think we've both talked about mental health on this show. Um, so I have, I, I am diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, uh, and I'm just a person who has always been, like, pretty anxious and nervous about most things for as long as I can remember. But starting at the end of college, I started having panic attacks, and... Um, I am, I now take meds, which make my panic attacks happen a lot less frequently. But before that, for a good seven or eight years, I would say, 
Um, I was having panic attacks like multiple times a week and I would rate them like if I were to say on a scale of one to 10, I was having like a, a six to an eight, like at least once a week and then several like lower grade um, multiple times a week. So it got really overwhelming. And if you're not someone who's ever experienced a panic attack, um, it's sort of in some ways hard to explain what that feels like. Uh, I listened to a podcast and now I'm not going to remember who said it. It might've been Jen Kirkman, but I might be conflating her with someone else. But I remember listening to someone being interviewed about a pan having a panic attack and what it feels like. And they talked about how it feels like it sort of feels like you're disappearing. Hmm. Like, that's such a good way to describe it because you are, at least for me, when I'm having a panic attack, I'm like hyper aware of my experience, but I feel like no one else is. I feel like I can tell that everything is going to implode and no one else can see it. And mm -hmm. it's just like a really scary dissociative feeling. And so the thing that I've, that I've learned, um, and I, I, I hope I can share this on the podcast is that like for a long time when I started having panic attacks, I didn't know for a long time that that's what they were. And even when I did, I didn't know like how to calm myself back down. And when people would ask like what they should do when I was having one, I never knew what to say. And there was one time that you and I were driving together and I started having a panic attack. I was driving and I hit, I turned to you and I was like, I don't want you to panic, but I'm having a panic attack right now. And I'm like, I feel really dizzy and I'm getting tunnel vision. And I was driving on the interstate and like your response was like, you're okay. You're having a panic attack. And, um, you said to me, which I like still say to myself all the time when I have <laughs> panic attacks, like this feels really scary like your brain is freaking out, but your body knows what to do. Just like, it's going to be okay. Just like, remember that your body knows what to do. Um, and so I feel like all of this is a roundabout way of saying that sometimes when a person that you care about is having a panic attack or really in a low, low point of depression, I think we are all conditioned to be like, I got to fix it. I have to like say the perfect thing to fix it. And that's what I'm going to do. And sometimes the most important thing you can do is just say, I see what's happening and I'm here. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. And so that's what makes to, to me. And I think this is what you are getting at. Like, that's what makes that scene so moving is he doesn't try to make her come out from under the bed. Mm -mm. He doesn't try to like tell her why she should be okay. Even when he gets under the bed with her, he's not like actively trying to like say the right formula of words to calm her down. He's just like, it's okay. I'm here. I'm just going to be right here. And he doesn't say a lot. He just is present with her. Um, yeah. And that allows her to feel safe enough to fall asleep, which is like a really beautiful thing. Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with you. And I think um, with what we'll get into about like what I know already is part of your problem with the movie, I think one thing that I... I wonder, I mean, I don't want to say it if I'm, like, speaking out of turn, but I do think we could both agree that the way that this movie um, illustrates, like, mental health and... So I think, like, at least in the way that this movie attempted to tackle or handle um, those touchier subjects, I think it did succeed in those mm -hmm. ways, even though I know, like, 
we disagree about the rest of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I totally agree. Let's get into the part we disagree about because I I would love to hear your take on this. So yeah. Um, we're gonna now fully spoil the ending sequence of the film and sort of the last third. So if you have not watched the movie and you don't want to have it spoiled for you, then skip ahead or pause the episode. Um, but here we go. So Hunter starts seeing a therapist uh, at the at the I almost said behest, but like at the requirement of her in laws and mm-hmm. her husband. Once they once she's caught the first time swallowing something that she shouldn't be, and so she's seeing this psychologist and she's sort of. Uh, in a way that feels very true and real, she's really downplaying what's going on and she keeps saying to the therapist, everyone's making a big deal out of it. It's not a big deal. It's totally fine. Um, She eventually reveals to her therapist that she is the product of a rape and she describes that when her mom was young, she was at a bar and was talking to a guy who bought her a drink. He then followed her home and broke into her apartment and sexually assaulted her. And she became pregnant, and Hunter is the child that she had um, as a result of that encounter, as a, as a result of that assault. And it is indicated that she then got married and had other kids. And we learn through Hunter and also through a phone call she has with her mom later in the movie that clearly Hunter's relationship with her mom is different than the relationship yeah. her sisters have with her mom, right? Like, it seems clear there's a very, one very brief phone call where she calls her mom. She has run away from Richie and is trying to find a place to go. Uh, and just from that one phone call, which is, again, a really great way to convey so much in a very short, simple um, piece of dialogue. But the mom sort of says, oh, you know, I'd love to have you, but your sister's here with her kids and I just don't have room right now. Mm-hmm. And it's this really beautiful line, right, where it's like both – both literally, I don't have room at the house, but also, like, emotionally, I don't have room for yeah. you. And um, Well, it's, like, also when they're in therapy and she says, like, it's fine. They they all treated me like I was like I was a part of the family. And it's, like, even just the way she says that and the fact that mm-hmm. she ne- feels like she needs to start off by saying that, it's, like, you right. know. It's, like, okay, so clearly they didn't. Right. And then she, like, pulls out his picture and she's, like, it's okay. I've dealt with it. I thought about it a lot. Yeah. It's like, so. <laughs> yeah, so That's what, not Hannah's how that al- works. what Hannah's alluding to is after she discloses to her therapist that uh, her father sexually assaulted, the her biological father sexually assaulted her mom, she reaches in her bag and pulls out, like, a mugshot of him that she clearly cut out of a newspaper that mm-hmm. she either brought with her to this appointment because she knew she was going to disclose this, or more likely she just always carries it around. And her therapist... <laughs> does a thing that you should not do where she says, do you want to see a picture of him? And the therapist is like, frankly, no, which Mm -hmm. is a totally human response, but like, don't put any judgment on what your client is doing. So anyway, um, like in that kind of way, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So we'll write. So anyway, (laughs) so we have this whole storyline where we learn that this is how that Hunter was conceived as a result of this assault. The therapist calls the husband and tells him that right. it is clear that he did not know. The way he responds is basically to bail out. Like, he he gets dressed and goes outside. And is like, I'm going to the gym. I'll be back later. I want to buy you something. Anything you want. Tell me what you want. Bracelet, whatever. I'll buy you whatever. And he just leaves. Um, 
So at this point, we've learned that this, about the rape, right? And then she continues to eat non-food items. They are going to uh, voluntarily, in air quotes, hospitalize mm-hmm. her. They are basically like, you don't have any other choice. Uh, give us all of your nice, expensive jewelry. We, we wouldn't want you to take it with you. And we'll just put you in uh, a facility until later for your sake and the baby's sake. And so she runs away with the help of the bodyguard guy. And she calls her mom, who does not have space for her. So she goes to a hotel where there's this, like, really sad but visually beautiful scene where Hunter is has – she filled both of the pockets of her really fancy trench coat <laughs> with dirt from the potting, uh, like the planters outside the motel. And she spreads the dirt all over this like beautiful, uh, like pastel floral seventies bedspread. And she's just sitting on the floor eating handfuls of dirt off while the bedspread. TV. Which, like she's while eating TV. snacks, but like it's dirt. Yeah. But it's just dirt. It was um, an episode of my strange addiction, by the way. Yeah. And so <laughs> what happens from there is she finds the man who assaulted her mom and she goes to his house. And when she gets there, his family is throwing him a birthday party. And so she chats with folks in the family and then she talks to his daughter and then she talks to him and tells him or she introduces herself as the daughter of and says her mom's name. So he realizes who she is and pulls her aside and she kind of confronts him in this. And this is all of this is where for me, the movie just uh, fell off the rails (laughs) is she confronts him in this way that I think is meant to feel really empowering and really powerful. And where she's like in his home, he has a new life now, he has a kid, he has a wife, he has family over, and she is very uh, explicitly threatening to reveal what he did. It's clear that they don't really know his past. And and she has this moment where she's like all, she seems like she's on the adrenaline high of interacting with him, and she's really kind of aggressive and is like, you don't get to tell me what to do, don't tell me to calm down, I, like you have to deal with me being here. But then she kind of breaks down and and is asking him, like, why he didn't want her or what she did wrong. And he is trying to comfort her and is like, it's not your fault. None of this is your fault. Um, and so then she leaves the party. And the next scene we see is her going to a Planned Parenthood or some similar clinic where she gets uh, medicine to have, like, a medically induced abortion. And it's the kind of she's early enough in her pregnancy where they give her some pills and, you know, they say, take this one in the office and then in a certain number of hours, take these other ones and then you'll miscarry. And so we see her go to the uh, mall and unlike before, she's just in like a sweater and she has her hair tied back and she's not all like dressed up to the nines and she takes the pills and the last scene is her going into the bathroom and we see like a very bloody toilet and she like wipes it up and cleans it and leaves. And it's, I think intended to be this juxtaposition with the earlier, uh, sequence where she eats the thumbtack and there's blood in the toilet where now she has taken control of her life and has decided that, you know, it was too early to be married to Hunter. She wasn't really sure that she loved him and she wants to do this all for herself. 
it just like I think it's supposed to feel really empowering and to me it just felt really hollow because the way Mm -hmm. that it came across in my viewing was like she confronts this man but ultimately it's like it felt like she needed him to validate that she didn't do anything wrong or like she needed him to like give her permission to let go of any guilt that she had over the fact that she was the product of rape. And so the fact that like that is shot in such a way that like it look feels like the inciting incident for her to have the abortion is like, it just like felt really icky to me because it felt like another example of her like not entirely doing something on her own, but doing it because like someone else told her it was okay to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because, um, like, you and I had talked beforehand, and, um, so going into that, I knew that it was, that that was going to be a part of it, um, but when I actually saw it, like, I actually, I appreciate it more than I thought I would, and, like, ah, excuse me, oh my god. <laughs> Sorry. She's so beclept. Like, yeah. No. Um I actually like I didn't really see it that way. Like, um I so one thing I appreciated about it is that like she to me it was like she came in guns a blazing, like, I'm gonna take out all of my frustration on you and you deserve it because of what you did. And like one thing that I actually appreciated about the scene was um it was like he's not that person anymore he has a family like he's moved past that um she asks him like why he did it and he like says like something about how like at that time he thought that he was like that he was the shit like he thought he was so powerful and to him and explicitly like it made him feel powerful to rape people right And that was, like, why he did it. And then he's, like, and then I went to jail, and I had, like, these terrible experiences, and I realized, or, like, you know, to him, he realized, like, he wasn't, like, a god like he thought he was. And how that sort of, like, how that affected him. And, you know, like, he served his time. He came out of jail. He didn't want to do those. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He learned about himself. And now he's, like, married and has a family, which I did appreciate, like, that part of it, that it wasn't just, like, she came there and she told him off or she came there and she blew up his spot and, like, got her revenge or something. It was, like, more complicated and nuanced than that, Mm -hmm. um, which I appreciated about that. And then, to me, it was sort of, like, she says early on when she's in therapy that um, that her, her mom's religion didn't allow abortion or like they didn't even talk about it Mm -hmm. so I can also see for her character how it's like you like she in it with what we're given within the context of the film it certainly seems like she was a like her so weird just like I don't know how to say this exactly her mother's pregnancy with her Mm -hmm. probably should have been aborted or maybe given up for adoption because she chose to have the baby but then the lasting effects of like having that baby and clearly like not 
like treating that child the same as the rest of your children mm-hmm. had a long-term emotional effect. Sure. And so um, to me, I guess to me it felt more like she went there ready to like tell him off, ready to like ruin his life. Then she had a conversation with him and realized like it wasn't so simple or it wasn't so black and white but also at the same time was able to like let go of something that was kind of holding her back. So I actually felt like in the end when she went and decided to have the abortion, I actually did feel like it was something that she came to on her own. Like Mm. it was like she finally let go of both what she was getting from her mom and what she was getting from her birth father. But just that she was able to, like, work through that a little bit more. Um, yeah. But that it... I didn't re- I didn't see it as much as, like, him telling her um, that it was okay. Like, I, I guess, like, to me it seemed more like she... It made sense to me that she would get there on her own. Um, and then I guess, like, I actually just, like, I kind of liked... Uh, the ending shot of just, like, a mall bathroom. Because I just, No, like I the, did, too. I yeah. did, too. I like the idea that it's, like, all these women are in and out of this space. And, like, we don't know what they're doing or, like, what's going on in their lives. And just that so many women and so many people in general. But, like, hey, it's our podcast, so I'm going to talk about women. Mm-hmm. Um, just, like, how so many women are dealing with so many things, like, day in and day out. And, like you don't even most people don't even like stop to think about that or like those experiences I really did like that being like sort of like the final shot is like all these women are just coming in to like check their makeup or just pee or take a shit and it's like you don't even know what just took place in that bathroom right right no I totally agree I guess that's where I land sort of is um, I I am glad that we see the ending differently because I think that makes for a more interesting conversation. Um, the the entire storyline around the rape and her dad, for me, like the line about the bodyguard being from Syria, just felt like for my in my like viewing of the movie, just felt like a throwaway thing that didn't need to be there. Like mm-hmm. the the whole storyline about the rape just ended up feeling like a plot device that I would totally agree with you that I although I disagree where it didn't bother me as much, I would totally agree with you that I don't think it was necessary at all. Yeah. So yeah, I think if you took that out, I would this movie would be like a ten out of ten for me. And I think as is, I reviewed it for BGH and I think what I kept saying throughout was like this movie looks beautiful. The colors are beautiful. The set design is beautiful. We only talked a little bit about, like, tangentially about costuming, but all of the costuming in this movie is very vintage looking, so that between the set design and the costuming, it has a very, like, Stepford Wives vibe, yeah. which is I cool thought it also considering was the of, messaging. Sort of a Rosemary's Baby, too, a little bit. Definitely. With, like, her haircut, and yep. she wears, like, a blue dress early on, so I saw yeah. that, too. Um. A lot of Peter Pan callers. (laughs) Yes. So I think for me, like, the whole storyline about the rape just, like, knocks the movie down several notches in my estimation just because I don't feel like it's necessary and I did not like the way it was handled. But I'm glad that it hit us both differently because I remember talking to you when I had seen this movie and you hadn't. And I was like, I keep hearing all these people that I respect really liked this movie and I don't get it. And then I was watching it and I was like, I get 
appreciating the movie, but I don't understand getting to the end and feeling like on the whole it, it's good, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad that you and I read the ending differently because I, I'm, I'm happy to hear the flip side of my experience watching it, you know? Yeah. Um, obviously, I prefer when we disagree just because, like, um, I think that that's, like, more on brand for us. Just, like, this witty banter it's created. You're doing a real uh, Alexis from Schitt's Creek vibe right now, but I do want to point out that the I have first time been watching the new season, so that's definitely where that's coming from. The first time <laughs> we disagreed on an episode, you were panicked that it would be a terrible episode because you were, like, afraid of us disagreeing about a movie. Hey, I mean, blame it on the gas leak, but I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hannah, do you have any uh, last thoughts about Swallow that we did not touch upon in our conversation? Um, I'm trying to think because I feel like when I first sat down, I was like, there's definitely one thing I'm going to forget. And yet, now that I'm here, don't remember what it is. And also, I feel okay about that. So I'm going to go ahead and say I feel good about where we're at. Perfect. Well, how many Bloody Marys out of five on our empirically validated uh, ranking scale? How many Bloody Marys would you give Swallow? Um, I think I would give it, like, a solid, um, like, three Bloody Marys with a beer back. So, basically, Mm -hmm. 3.5. Because I wouldn't, I don't think it was necessarily in the realm of a movie that I would, like, gush over or enjoy watching again, or necessarily even tell someone to watch it, but... I do, at least for me, I did feel like it um, had good intentions behind it, and it did um, succeed in illustrating um, some complicated uh, topics in a way that other movies, like, don't normally uh, carefully work so hard with. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that part of it. Yeah. How about you, girl? Here's what's fascinating. Not a five. (laughs) How dare you? I don't give everything a five. Uh, (laughs) Here's what's fascinating, though, because we disagreed a great deal about this movie, but I think we're going to have the same rating. So I'm going to give this movie three Bloody Marys and one marble. Although I would ask (laughs) (laughs) that it be. I would like to point out that, like, we do not endorse swallowing marbles. I'm just saying three Bloody Marys and a cup full of marbles, like my cup full of olives. Oh, I don't, I don't endorse swallowing non-food items. But if you're gonna swallow a non-food item, make it something that's smooth and not gonna like break or stab your intestines, um, or like leak battery acid. That was insane. Oh my god! I can't. The doctor was like, that battery could have leaked battery acid inside of you, and you would have died. And she's just kind of like, it's not a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, well, it's it's not even anymore. It's fine. Also, I can't believe we got this far, and I never mentioned um, my friend, who's a doctor's aide, uh, and the time they had a seventy-five-year-old man with a fully intact light bulb in his ass. (laughs) Oh no. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, that reminds me of. your favorite podcast that you got me hooked on, Dumb People Town, <laughs> d- does their like annual thing where they read the list of things people have put in their bodies. Oh God, yeah, it's a truly sobering experience to hear what men will put in their pee holes. 
and the kinds of things like the and it's like a it's so funny because you listen to the stories of what men put in their dicks and it's it's hard to listen to i don't even have a penis in it it's upsetting i'm like but then when you hear about the stuff that women do most of it's like i get i see how you got there most of it and also their stories are great right like i remember listening to the episode where they did a live show and john ham was one of the guests and they're reading the lists and one of the things because sometimes they're reading direct quotes from the medical record and there was one that was like woman hurt her knee vacuuming also has had vibrators stuck in her vagina for three weeks and it's like wait a second (laughs) way to bury the lead yeah Um, i just always think of it was like a full iphone 5 charger in a dude's urethra I almost covered my ears, but I have headphones in, so that wouldn't be <laughs> um, I was, like, yeah. in high school, my, um, like, ninth, ninth or tenth grade French teacher was doing a, a guessing game with us in French, where we had to guess, like, celebrities, and somebody, one of them was David Beckham, so mm-hmm. she Googled David Beckham, and one of the first things that came up, came up on the projector screen in front of my high school class was a picture of his dick, but my, <laughs> our sweet, sweet French teacher... Um, is it which French right? I don't teacher say, was it? I don't say her name, or do I say her name? Miss Kugler. <laughs> oh, Miss Kugler. Miss Kugler, oh. the tiniest little French woman. She screamed and covered her own computer screen, so like she wouldn't have to see it. But it was like projected <laughs> on a wall in front of a bunch oh. of teenagers. <laughs> what an adorable. Well, you know, it wasn't that was like her rational reaction. Then she was probably like, "Oh no!" <laughs> and then she was like, "Oh, I gotta close the projector screen." But. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, she was like, she she herself was like, oh, I can't look at this. <laughs> well, Hannah, you have inadvertently given us the perfect segue because speaking of dicks and also soccer, are you ready for this week's In Ladier News? Is it about how, like, all of Italian soccer is canceled? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, all of soccer everywhere is getting fucked up. Like, eat... We're not going to get into it, but even today they announced a couple of Sportings Away games aren't going to get played because they're in areas where, like, large gatherings are being prohibited right now. Yeah, Chicago, no St. Patrick's Day Parade, and they did a press conference this morning where they asked people not to go out this weekend for St. Patrick's Day. Woofty. Like, good Stay safe. (laughs) Um... So, Hannah, I know it is, it's been documented on this podcast that you hate soccer a lot. Um, I don't know if you have any awareness of the equal pay issue that has been going on with the U.S. women's team. Only from what you've told me, but I am tangentially uh, aware. Okay, so for those of you who are listening who are not aware, first of all, the U.S. women's national soccer team is fucking amazing, and if you disagree in any way, I will fight you. Um, they have won the World Cup four times, and after they won this most recent World Cup, they entered into a lawsuit with the U.S. Soccer Federation because their pay scale is really different than the men. Now, I'm not going to go way, way into this because in reality, the, the system and framework of how they get paid is set up differently than how the men get paid. So it's not like a one-to-one situation. Um, but even still, the amount that the U.S. women get paid is astronomically smaller than the men. Now, if you are not a soccer fan, Hannah, it's important for you to know that our U.S. men's team, while I appreciate them, is garbage. (laughs) Um, 
And our women's team is amazing and is consistently like one of the top teams in the entire world. They are currently playing in the She Believes Cup where they are not only undefeated, but no other team has even scored a goal against them. Whoa. Um, yeah. So all they want is to be paid equally to the men. Um, and they want retroactive back pay for the World Cups they've won where they haven't been paid the way that men would be paid if they won the World Cup. So... Um, that all was sort of like in the ethos and are sorry, in the atmosphere when the world cup happened, because it was like a really good media time to try to gain traction around this, um, campaign, because of course the best way for them to reach a good resolution on this issue is to get fans engaged, right. And wanting to care, um, and pay attention, put pressure on us soccer to pay them. And, um, there's all kinds of great podcasts and books about this if you want to learn more. But, like, this is something that the women's team has been fighting for forever. Uh, back in the 90s when, like, the OG women's team was a thing, they did not get paid to play at all or to practice. Whoa. And when, when they traveled abroad, they would basically be on planes that were, like, charter planes. They would, like, stop and pick up all the other teams. They would stay in the worst hotels. And they would get $10 a day in stipend to eat while they were abroad. That was it. Oh my God. Well, the men got to like fly in private jets and stay in five star hotels and have like personal chefs. So this has been like an, a long ongoing issue in women's soccer. So over the weekend, it was International Women's Day. And this week, the She Believes Cup started. So in light of both of those things, Monday, U.S. Soccer Federation uh, filed something in court to like uh, basically saying like the this is the the background of what our case will be when this issue goes to trial and they said things like uh under the equal pay act quote the job of a men's national team player carries more responsibility within u.s soccer than the job of a women's national team player mm. they also said that u.s uh that there are, quote, biological differences and indisputable science to argue that women should be paid less because the men's team, quote, requires a higher level of skill than the women's team. Oh, oh, my God. You want to suck my dick and then tell me that? Yeah. So then I just want to read you this because this made me very proud. It said the Federation's lawyer grilled women's national team stars like Carly Lloyd and Alex Morgan over the fact that they were not as strong as or sorry, the fact that they were not as strong or fast as players on the men's team. Quote, do you think that the team could be competitive against the senior men's national team? A U.S. soccer lawyer asked Carly Lloyd, who's from New Jersey. Um, and Carly Lloyd responded, I'm not sure. Shall we fight it out and see who wins and then we get paid more? Uh. <laughs> um, nice. So, yeah. So, like, it's just a pile of hot garbage. And, like, as we're recording, it's Wednesday evening and the U.S. women were playing Japan tonight in the She Believes Cup. And when they went out on the field, they were all wearing their jerseys inside out so that the U.S. or that the U.S. Soccer Federation logo would not show. Whoa! Like, obviously, they had to turn them back the other way to play the game, but they all walked onto the field for the national anthem with their jerseys on inside out. Um, so if you are a soccer fan and you're not aware of this, like I would encourage you to read up on it. And if you're even if you're not a soccer fan, like I think it. There are massive implications to the to the fact that women who are performing at the height of their athletic potential are being paid shit money. And the way that U.S. soccer is arguing against it is like, well, women are less good at sports, so they should not get paid as much money. Weren't they also making weren't their games making more money before? I mean, too? lots. I don't I don't 
I don't know that for certain. I do know that, like, as far as, um, as far as home games, like, the U.S. women's team makes a shit ton of money. The U.S. men's team does, too. But what's interesting is that some games, especially in, like, CONCACAF, where we're playing South and Central America teams, uh, the U.S. men have, like, almost as many spectators from the opposing team as their own, <laughs> which, like, does not happen at U.S. women's mm. games. Like... You know this, but I went to one of the games during the victory tour after they won the World Cup this summer. Our parents took Jeremy and our sister-in-law and myself to see the U.S. women's team on their victory tour play in Philly at the Eagle Stadium. And that stadium was, like, almost entirely full. Um, so, and again, the women have won the World Cup four times. The men have, I don't think, ever won it. Mm. That's so embarrassing for them. So, and if they have, like, don't at me. I don't give a shit. We're just, the men's team is not good. So, here All we are. All we're saying is, you know what? Pay the ladies more, okay? Yeah, and the, like, the other thing that's crazy equally. is, like, the U.S. The U.S. men's team supports the women being paid more money. So, the U.S. Soccer Federation saying that they can't pay them equal because the men work harder. Like, the men are like, we don't feel that way. Like, we think have they should you- be paid as much as us. Are you familiar with, and again, sorry for my millionth reference, but if you don't know me personally, that's how I speak, so whatever. Um, <laughs> if you are not familiar, Google it. It'll be a little treat for the end of this. It's like a nice little pick-me-up. But you know in um, Parks and Rec, it's like early on, I think it's like season one or two, excuse me, where um, they go on a hunting trip that's normally all men, and like Leslie insists on going. Yes. And Ron gets shot, and so they have to do a report. And they don't know who shot him. It wasn't Leslie, but they don't know mm-hmm. who it was. So Leslie takes the fall, and she does, like, the re- official report with the park ranger. And if you can watch the montage of Amy Poehler giving fake excuses for how she would have accidentally shot someone when she <laughs> didn't even do that is fucking hilarious. Um... But one of them is, she's like, I mean, there's a couple, I mean, it's all gold, but there's one where she's like, mm, maybe my bra was too tight and I just couldn't focus. And there's another one where she's like, I saw something squishy and I freaked out. <laughs> there's one where she's like, she's like, um, I'm good at handling pain, I'm bad at math, and I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm gonna watch that episode when I go to bed tonight, man. Leslie it is knows so it's a good. That just that whole thing of Amy Poehler just riffing off of like possible stupid explanations that like a a, a man or someone who was particularly misogynistic would accept to be true <laughs> mm-hmm. is hysterical and definitely worth the watch. But my friend John and I always do that for each other. Where we'll be talking sometime and we'll just like if either of us fucks up, we'll just be like. I'm really good at tolerating pain, I'm bad at math, and I'm stupid. (laughs) (laughs) She's so dumb sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I I mean, what better way to end our podcast for the week than by saying, like, fucking pay women equal money and down with the patriarchy and other shit. Yeah, what she said. That's what she said. (laughs) Oh my god, wait, why don't we start using that's what she said for, like, obvious things about how women should be treated equally? 
Oh my God. Did I just start a viral movement? Is this how it wow. starts? Let's if reclaim it. If I had social it. media, would I be rolling in, I don't know, viruses? <laughs> I don't know. Oh no. Okay. And on that note, <laughs> clink! Oh, oh, oh.